Welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. This is week two, exploring the connection between the kingdom of God and discipleship. We're going to dive right in. Uh, you'll remember last week that I challenged us to not think that during the summer about the word Christian, to sort of get rid of that word for the summer, um, and to think instead about what it means to be a disciple. Um, historically, the church has, has tried really hard to get people to become Christians. And by that, I mean that we... And to a certain extent, this is true at City Grace as well. Our goal was to get people to sign off on, on certain beliefs and to be able to say, yes, I, I, I believe this. Um, but what we've failed in some circumstances to do, and I think what the church in America at large has failed to do, is to really raise up people who are disciples. And so last week we explored a little bit about that sort of distinction. If, if, you wanna, you know, if you're willing to go that way, the distinction between Christian and disciple. And in my group, somebody made the comment that, you know, ideally, there's no difference between those words. Anybody else in your group that was the general consensus, like, well, yeah, I see what Ben is saying, but really a Christian should be a disciple, a disciple should be a Christian. Anybody else, any other groups sort of have that similar thing? Okay. So, but the idea of a disciple as somebody who is not just signing off on doctrine and saying, yes, I believe these things, but who's actively um, learning what it means to follow Jesus on a day-to-day level. It was sort of what we explored last week, what are the fundamentals of discipleship. Real briefly, um, I said that a disciple fundamentally is somebody who is personally responding to the call of Jesus. It's a call to follow a person. So while doctrine and theology are part of it, that ultimately discipleship is about a person. It's about Jesus and it's about following him. Secondly, the discipleship is a learning process, an apprenticeship process. And in the same way that in any, um, in any profession where you have an apprentice and a, and, a, and, a, and a teacher, it's not just about learning things, but it's learning skills. It's modeling your life after, after the master, the teacher. Jesus called his disciples into a life of apprenticeship, actually walking with him to where he would go, watching what he would do, and then imitating him. And so at various times, Jesus actually sent out the disciples to do the very things that he'd been doing. And we are also are encouraged to do the very things that Jesus has been doing. A third aspect was obedience and submission to Jesus. Um, another aspect was fellowship. Um, discipleship happens in community with other people. And then finally, the, the last fundamental aspect of discipleship was this idea that Whatever you received, you would eventually share it. So it was a process of receiving from Jesus, but then, as we know, Jesus called his first disciples to be fishers of men, right? So from the very, very beginning, it was understood that to be a disciple, it would never end with you. That whatever you learned, whatever you were taught, you would eventually be responsible for then bringing that uh, out into the world. Now, We talked about what those fundamentals were last week, but you may have noticed that I said almost nothing about what the content was. Did any of you pick up on that? So I said that it's about answering the call to follow uh, Jesus, but I didn't say what following Jesus really meant. I said that it's uh, being a disciple is is an an apprenticeship um, process, it's a learning process, but I didn't say what you'd be learning. 
right? I said it's obedience and submission, but I didn't really say what that meant. I didn't say what you would be obedient to um, in sharing. I said you're going to share something. As Christians, were, as disciples, we're, we're being trained to share something, but I didn't say what we were going to be sharing. So tonight um, we're going to get into a little bit more of the content to fill in uh, to fill in some of those holes. But before I even start that, let me just ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the word kingdom at church? What did you say? A home. A home? Yes, a castle. <laughs> Domination? <laughs> What's that? Oh, yes. yes. Anybody else? When you hear the word kingdom at church, what comes to mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephanie. Thanks, Ray. Okay. So there's an already not yet aspect to the kingdom. Show of hands for how many people know what that means. Some of you kind of have an have a understanding of that? Okay. We're going to come back to that. Any, anything else? What is the kingdom? So a kingdom has boundaries. A kingdom has a king. A kingdom has a king, yes. Thank you, son. <laughs> All right, so great answers, everybody. Um, the word kingdom is probably, when it comes to what discipleship is all about, is probably the most important word that you need to understand. The word kingdom, or basileia, is used 160 times in the New Testament. The New Testament is not a big book, so that's a lot of times um, that the word is used. And the gospel, which, how many of you noticed that last week I talked about discipleship, and I didn't say the gospel, I didn't use the word gospel probably hardly a single, even a single time, but nobody got mad at me about that. The gospel is central to what, what discipleship is all about. And the gospel, according to Jesus, is the message about the kingdom. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news that in, in Greek is euangelion, uh, it means gospel, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus' gospel, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim was the good news about the kingdom of God. And Jesus, in his ministry, so much of what he did and said was about the kingdom. You'll remember that um, many of Jesus' parables were parables about the kingdom. Anybody remember any parables? I mean, he said the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, what would he any Anybody know any of those? A seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Yeah. A lot of Jesus' uh, teaching was about the kingdom. Jesus' prayer, as Pastor Norman is going to share later, was a prayer about the kingdom. Jesus' actions were ushering in the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom. So, so much of what Jesus was about had to do with the kingdom. Now, just for clarification, in the New Testament, the kingdom is referred to in different ways. Sometimes it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's just called the kingdom. They're all referring to the same thing. And following Jesus is all about the kingdom. So what in the world is the kingdom about? Now, I'm going to give you the history of the Old Testament. Uh, very, very quick and dirty. You ready for this? Okay. In the beginning, God creates the world, right? 
This is to give you a little bit of background so you understand what the kingdom is. Sometimes um, a thing does not really make sense until you get the backstory. So here's the backstory. In the beginning, God creates the world. The first human beings are in a garden. The picture that we get in the very beginning of the Bible of the world is that it's a world of perfect peace, perfect shalom, the Hebrew word for shalom. Uh, that word designates that everything is in its proper order. There's flourishing, right relationship. Um, the picture in the, that we have in uh, Genesis is that God and, and human beings are totally good. Their relationship is good. They're connected. Um, Adam and Eve, the, the sort of primordial humans, um, are, they also exist in a relationship with no shame, no coercion. They're naked, but they love each other, and they, they are having a great time. All right? But then, uh, Genesis 3, sin enters the world. And this is, the, this is called the fall. The fall is the point where God's perfect good creation, where everything is harmonious, is all of a sudden um, corrupted. Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters into the world. And as a result of sin, you have a lot of distortion, confusion, and corruption um, and separateness that occurs. Because of sin, there's a rupture between the relationship between God and human beings. So you ever wonder, why does it seem like God is so far away? The answer is sin. Because God is a holy and perfect God, and, and um, God can't sort of come into contact with sin. So God sort of vacates in a way. Uh, he, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and as a result, you have uh, basic, basically a corrupted world. And so, if you go on the news, or you go online, and you read about all the stuff that's happening in the world, you read about racism, you read about, um, you, you read about war, you read about genocide, you read about um, uh, people killing each other and doing all sorts of awful things. All the sin in the world um, is a result of the fall. It's, things have gone from bad to worse, right? And so this is sort of how the Bible explains it. At the very heart of that corruption that, that's in the world is this brokenness in the relationship between humanity and God. So, God sees this broken world, this broken situation that we're a part of, and He decides to do something about it. What does He do? Sends His Son. Sends His Son. That's true. But what happens... What's that? Even before the law... God comes up with a rescue, that too, John. God comes up with a rescue plan for the world in the people of Israel. God says, I am going to set apart this special race of people that are going to bear my name. They're going to be a blessed people. And so Abraham is the father of the Jews, the father of the Hebrews. God picks Abraham pretty much out of the blue, says, you, Abraham, are going to be a great person. You're going to be the, the ancestor of many, many people. And people don't realize this, but the, the people of Israel, God's chosen race, it was never, ever just about them. It was always intended that the people of Israel, God's special, chosen, holy people, would thereby be God's means of bringing peace and bringing shalom back into the world. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. However, so he makes a covenant with them. The problem was that um, Israel, in the end, failed to live up to her mission of saving the world. Um, God had made a covenant with them in agreement and said, I'm to be your God. You're to be my people. And these are the things that you need to follow, which was the law. 
But if you read the Old Testament, you hear, unfortunately, especially in books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that over and over again, Israel fails in her mission because she compromises on her um, allegiance to God. And so this was something that you know God had promised, and this is unfortunately this is what happens. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then be a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. So God promises the people of Israel that if they don't follow him and worship him alone, then the the deal is off, essentially. So that's what happens. The people... um, uh, the Israelites go into exile in the 5th and 6th century B.C. They're pretty much destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They get carried off into exile. Eventually, some of them make their way back to Jerusalem. But even in Jerusalem, they're, they're under foreign occupation by the Romans. Okay? So that is just to lay the groundwork. When Jesus shows up on the scene, um, that is essentially where they're at. Um, the world still lies in its corruption. Israel has this sense that they had the kingdom at one point, but then the kingdom was lost. Um, they realized that what they have with the temple in, in Jerusalem is nothing like what they used to have, and there's still a sense of waiting um, for God to come back, restore all things, and use Israel, return Israel to her former glory, and then to bring about the restoration of the world. Okay, That's all background. Now, imagine that you do a little thought experiment so let's say that you're a first century Jewish person living in Israel. Okay? You're under foreign occupation by the Romans. You want very much to have your own autonomy as a country. Um, you know that you as a country have failed God and that you're sort of on the outs with God. And now imagine a prophet shows up on the scene and says the kingdom of heaven is near. How would you interpret that? What does that mean? Okay. No, as a as a reaction. So they would whoever said that they would be like you're you're a liar you're you're kidding, because that's because that's clearly not what's happening. We're politically occupied. Okay. Okay. Somebody shows up on the scene and says the kingdom is near. What does that mean for you, given everything that's happened? The kingdom of heaven is near. Can you say louder? You're going to have your own place. You're going to have your own place soon. Okay. Okay. The world is ending. Okay. Let's say this person shows up on the scene and they're doing all these incredible acts, these miracles, and so you're inclined to believe this person. Then, what do you think is implied by this idea that the kingdom is near? Liberation. Liberation from what? From the Romans? Yeah. Okay. And that is actually very accurate. The, the disciples of Jesus thought that that's exactly what Jesus was going to do. What else might they have been hoping for and expecting? A new king? Yep, yep. I mean, let's go back, let's go back to all this, right? All, all the distortion, all the corruption in the world. Um, <laughs> what they're hoping for is, is systems put right. They're hoping for shalom to be reinstituted in the world. They're hoping for sin to be dealt with. They're hoping for that separation from God to be fixed 
for God and, and human beings, for God and Israel really to be restored in their relationship. So real briefly, um, when he says, uh, this is, this, these are three things. They're hoping for a restored people. When Jesus arrives on the scene and says, the kingdom of heaven is near, it means three things. First of all, Hosea 2, verse 23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That's from Hosea. I preached on it a couple months ago. So part of the hope that the kingdom coming down into Israel in the first century was that these people who have been scattered, their national identity has been, um, has been destroyed, they are hoping to once again be the people of God. Another aspect of it, that the king's reign would be established. Somebody mentioned that with, with a kingdom, there's a king. They're hoping God will be that king and he will establish his kingdom forever. So from Daniel, it's a prophecy from um, during the Babylonian exile. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So for them, they understand it as the, the rule of God. And this is very much what the kingdom of God is about. It is the effective reign or the rule of God coming into the world, fixing everything that's wrong with the world, bringing healing, bringing restoration, bringing freedom, bringing liberation for everyone who is in bondage. And that's bondage of every kind. And then finally... Um, uh, whereas they are experiencing this, this disconnect between heaven and earth, between God and them, the coming of the kingdom means that God will once again come and, and be with his people. So this is a picture that um, John the Apostle has of the end. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So when Jesus comes um, on the scene and he is announcing that the kingdom of God is near, he's saying that there is available to you right now this new reality that is breaking into the world and it's bringing all these things with it. The God's perfect shalom, his rule, his healing, his flourishing, his restoration and freedom that that is becoming available. It's like this new reality. I, I don't know how else to say it. Let me, let me tell you maybe a story just to exemplify it. When I was in high school, I had some lower back pain issues. And I basically had to not do sports for like half a year. And during that time, I was fairly musical. I decided that since I was laid up, I would get a guitar and learn how to play guitar. And learning how to play an E chord and an A chord and a D chord pretty much changed my life because you can play so many songs which is like the E, the A, and the D you can play so much music with just those three chords and whereas I had played trumpet and piano which are you know instruments that require sort of space and space and like the proper setting the thing about a guitar is you can bring it anywhere and you can play anywhere, and you have your three chords, so you can play so many songs. So this playing this new instrument opened up a new reality for me, a new reality of music. And the skill, um, you know, I, I, and the skill of being able to play the guitar enabled me to take part of that new reality. Does that make sense? Or you add like a like a B seven to the mix, and then you're really hammering. 
You know, then you can really do. Then the reality opens up even more. So that's sort of that Jesus coming into the world was saying this new reality is coming. It's not fully here, but it's not far away. It's close, and you can be a part of it. Now, you're a disciple of Jesus, let's say. He's called you to follow him. And he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. Um, And you want to follow this guy, and he's doing some pretty amazing miracles, so you're inclined to believe that what he says is true. What questions would you want to ask him about this kingdom? What's the first question that's going to pop in your mind about this kingdom that he's preaching about? Yeah, Daniel. Where is it? Okay, great. That's a great question. Where is this kingdom? It's near. Uh, you know, where is it? You know. What? When is this kingdom coming? What did you say, John? Is it like? Is it metaphorical? Is it real? Like, is that what you mean? Yeah. What does it mean? What it's about? Okay. What's my role in it? What's my role in it? Great question. What other questions? Wouldn't you want to know who it's for? Do I get to be a part of this kingdom? Is it for really righteous, really holy people? Or what? Who gets to, who gets to participate? What other questions might you ask? Do we get to be a part of it now? Do we have to wait? When, when is it? If it's near, when is it fully coming? That gets to Stephanie's question earlier, the already but not yet, right? Any other questions you'd want to ask Jesus about this kingdom? Are my friends in it? <laughs> Are my friends in it? Is there art in the kingdom? Is there music in the kingdom? There's worship in the kingdom? Okay. So, this gets to the heart of what... Those are all great questions. This gets to the heart of what discipleship is all about. Because what Jesus comes to bring into the world is this kingdom, this new reality. And you can't separate discipleship from this idea, this concept of the kingdom... Discipleship, if I were to sort of redefine it based on what I said last week, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, is about embracing this kingdom and then stepping into it. It's about entering into that kingdom, experiencing what it's about, and then you could say becoming a servant or a subject. Kingdoms have subjects. It's about becoming a a subject of the kingdom. That is what discipleship is all about. Is your life gets caught up in this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And so all the questions that you asked are exactly the right questions to be asking. What do I do as a part of this kingdom? What is this kingdom about? How do I, how do I serve this kingdom? How do I seek this kingdom? Pastor Norm's going to be talking about how do I pray for this kingdom? Um, because as a servant of Jesus, we are to do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Jesus embodied the kingdom. So as his disciples, we also learn to, to, to think about, understand what it means to, um, to embody the kingdom. So how do then, and I, just to get real practical, real briefly, and then we're going to move into our small groups. How do you enter into this kingdom? And the great news is that in the same way that the kingdom of God was breaking into Israel in the first century through Jesus. The kingdom of God is still near, it's still available, and it still is breaking into our lives 
if we have the wherewithal and the perception to see it happening, we can take advantage of those opportunities and actually enter, deep, enter more deeply into the life of the kingdom. So let me tell you um, what I mean by that. A couple of years ago, I went on a, uh, on a men's retreat. And uh, we, the guy that was taking us was a, um, he was like a men's mentor type person. He was a really cool guy. We didn't know him very well at all. And uh, so the cabin where we were going to was uh, like a two-hour hike from the road. So you had to carry all your food and all your stuff with you. And uh, we were on the path, and he said that he knew a moose call and that we were going to see if there's any moose. So he, <laughs> he, went, he bent over like this, and, he, and then he was like, <laughs> and he farted. <laughs> we're like, this is going to be some spiritual retreat with this guy. It ended up being really fun, but... He was crazy. So anyway, we got, we got up on top of the mountain. And there were no moose showed up, by the way. It didn't work. Uh, we got on top of the mountain, and then we did this thing called the, the wheel. And the wheel, the philosophy behind the wheel was a wheel has many spokes. And you know, if, you're, if certain spokes get out of alignment, then um, the wheel becomes wobbly, and then you don't drive straight. And so his question to us was, is there a spoke in your life that needs to be either tightened up or loosened up? So me and Steve and, and him and a couple of other people that were there, we sort of went around and all shared. And I had, and when I'm trying to, the whole point of this is to try to explain what a Kairos moment is. But I had a Kairos moment at that point in time. This was a number of years ago. And I'm going to explain what a Kairos moment was in a minute. But my Kairos moment was at that moment, I realized that in ministry, I oftentimes became very frustrated with people when they didn't sort of behave or act the way I felt like I needed them to or wanted them to. And then as a result of that, I would demonize them. I would think really negative things about them and make all sorts of assumptions about their motives and stuff like that. So I, I had this realization that I was doing it. I confessed it to the group. And we went on a hike, and there was this ice-cold river, and that was our supposed cleansing ceremony. We jumped in the ice, we stripped down, jumped into the ice-cold river, and then that was supposed to be like our release from this sin. We're supposed to let it go and then live, live a new life. But anyway, so I had this moment on, on the river, this Kairos moment, this realization that, that I had this problem. And that, I, I just share this as an example of, of ways that we can enter more deeply into the life of the kingdom. So how it works is, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the good news. So he says, the kingdom of God is near, it's at your fingertips. Um, Mike Breen, who does a lot of discipleship teaching, says it's like this invisible reality, and there's like this, um, this wavy wall, and you, you can like stick your hand into, into that, like that world. It's right there, you can grab it. And he says, the way that you get into it is repenting, and then believing the good news. And so, um, in life, there, well, in Greek, there are these two different kinds of ways that we refer to time. There's chronos time, and then there's kairos time. And chronos time is just chronological time. It's minutes, hours, days. It's sort of the, the time that goes by, um, and it helps us keep track of the passage of time. But in the Bible, and in Greek, there's this other word for time, which is kairos time. And Kairos time, the significance of Kairos time is never about the length, but it, it's measured more in terms of the, the significance of what happens. It could be, you know, a second. It could be a, a, a minute. It could be an hour. It could be a really short period of time in your life. But it's special because it's like a transform, it's a potentially transformative 
uh, moment in your life. It's a milestone or a significant experience. And these Kairos moments are invitations from God to enter more deeply into the life of the kingdom. And how it works is um, when you have one of these Kairos moments, and a Kairos moment, it, it can be a very positive experience. It can be a very negative experience. But the point, of, the point is that at that moment, you kind of realize that there's an opportunity here to enter more deeply into the life of the kingdom, that God is giving you an opportunity to, to say yes to him and yes to the kingdom or to say, no, I don't want to. So there's two things that you could do when you get to this Kairos moment, again, this image is borrowed from Mike Breen from his book, a Discipling, Building a Discipling Culture. Um, let's see if the laser works. Bang, yes. But you can't see it on the screen. So time is, time is progressing. Um, at a certain moment in time, you have your Kairos moment. And that is when you have the, the opportunity to enter the learning circle which is what we were doing on top of the mountain. We were entering into the learning circle. And the learning circle has sort of two parts. There's the sort of reflective thinking part, um, that sort of change part, and then there's the action part, where you, move, where you have faith and you move forward on the, uh, under the belief that God is empowering you to, to, to love or to change or do whatever it, whatever it is. So, first of all, you observe the Kairos moment. You notice it. You say, yes, this has happened. You reflect on it. Uh, that's the second point. You think about you know, this moment, what is the significance of it? Why was I feeling this way? What might be happening here? Um, but then you discuss it. You bring into the conversation with other people your reflections. You get feedback from people that you trust. And then you move forward, um, changing and entering more deeply into the kingdom. You make a plan. So usually we don't act unless we come up with a specific plan for what we're going to do to put something into practice. Um, account means that you you work in a system of accountability. So um, oftentimes it's helpful when we, when, we're, when we plan to do something to actually tell people we're going to do it. Because if you know that other people know that you've made this commitment, then there's sort of, you put that um, accountability in place to hold yourself accountable and you're more likely to do it. And then you actually act. Now we sometimes think of like, well, isn't faith just something we do intellectually? But like if you read Hebrews and, you, and you, you know, there's that passage where it says, by faith, People did this. By faith, people did that. And James talks about faith without actions being dead. Um, point being that faith is never just something that's up here, but faith always gets played out in terms of how you act. And so it's important that at the end of it, you actually move forward with whatever it is that you're thinking you're going to do. Just to give you a, a brief example, uh, another um, situation in my life, um, I was going through a period of uh, just discouragement general discouragement, feeling kind of down about ministry and about life in New York. The cost of rent was, you know, was insane. The cost of childcare is insane. Um, my wife and I were just, you know, we were just, we were, we were, in, we were discouraged. And so um, we were praying about what to do, praying about our lives here in New York and trying to figure out from God, are we meant to stay in this city? Is this some, can we really hack it here? Does God really want us to stay here? Are we still feeling called here? So we were observing that we um, were you know, in a period, in a downtime, essentially. We're not doing so hot. So we entered into a period of discernment, and um, over the course of basically a month or two, a lot of really incredible things happened. First of all, we had a couple of visitors to City Grace who um, were from other places, and they spoke very encouraging words to me 
Um, a couple of you guys actually um, said some very encouraging things to me. A friend of ours uh, mailed us some Ralph Lauren kids' clothes, which for me, it's like, I don't really care where my kids' clothes are from, but for Christy, who is into like fashion and stuff like that, the fact that somebody would give us Ralph Lauren kids' clothes for whatever reason, really touched her, and it impacted her, and it made her feel made her feel really great. But the icing on the cake was when I got a um, an email from a prayer supporter in Singapore, and she's a person who had an NYU daughter many years ago who went to City Grace like for a couple weeks. She's been praying for us this whole time. She emailed me out of the blue and said, "Benjamin, can you send me your?" your um, bank account number and your routing number. Now, I don't know this person at, hardly at all, and so I felt very uncomfortable doing that. But I'm like, she sent me books in the past, and I'm like, there's no way she's going to try to like steal my money. But it's like, I don't know her that well. It's in Singapore. I was a little bit like nervous about it, but I'm like, you know, there's, there's no way after she's been praying for us all these years that she's going to like try to like rip me off now. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I just sent her the information. And she, she, no lie, said, I felt led by God to just give you this as an encouragement to you. And she, she dropped like a bunch of money into, I won't even say that. She dropped five grand into my account, just as a gift. Just as a total, total gift. <laughs> so, you have to understand that where my wife and I were in terms of, in terms of struggling with the money issue... That particularly spoke to us because what it said to us was, it felt like God was saying, don't worry, I so got you covered, I can provide for you, you don't need to worry about things. So that was a huge, huge Kairos moment for us. So, of course, there was a lot of observation, reflection, a lot of discussion that went into it. There was the moment itself. Now, it's a little bit fuzzier when it comes to planning and accounting and acting, and, and probably I should have done a better job with that so that I don't fall into the same pattern of discouragement and stuff like that. But the basic, um, for us, the basic point was you need to stop worrying about your finances and trust that God will provide for you because God is, has limitless resources and, and He will provide. If He wants you to be in New York and stay in New York, He'll make a way for it to happen. So that was basically the action. Do you see how that worked? So, um, we're going to break up into our groups. Yes? The Kairos moment is an opportunity, an invitation to enter more deeply into the kingdom. Yes. The kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of God in the world. So the idea of the kingdom of God coming, right? that's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, the kingdom already exists, right? Because in heaven, God's word stands. What God wants to happen, happens. In the world, where there's lots of sin and corruption, God's will is often ignored and thwarted. So the idea of the coming of the kingdom of heaven is what is happening in heaven to be made a reality in earth. What is in heaven, God, to be connected and brought into, into the world. I, ho- I hope that makes sense. So here's the assignment for next week. I want all of you to observe one Kairos moment over the course of the next week. It could be something small. It could be something big. 
And like I said, sometimes it's a real positive experience. Sometimes it's a it's more of a negative experience. I've had a I won't go into details about it, but I had a very negative one recently. I I did something that really hurt my wife's feelings, and it was like a a wake up call to pay attention to a certain area of my life. And so that was definitely definitely a Kairos moment. But you know what a Kairos moment is because it's something that in remember I had that I had that picture. Um, The picture here of the kingdom of God, and it, it has all these elements. Oh, this clicker is killing me. <laughs> the, the, the kingdom has all those elements in it. And so if, if in your life you're, you know, there's an area where, let's say, God's, God's rule, you're being invited to submit to God's rule, there's an area where you need healing, and that's an opportunity for you to experience the healing of the kingdom, the flourishing. So it's... It, it's God bringing these things more deeply into your life, and the way you enter into that is through repentance and faith. Which, by the way, we're going to probably spend a whole another session talking about repentance and faith. So we'll we'll have time to uh, to explore that more. And at this point, I'm going to welcome up Dana, who has some instructions regarding our uh, small group discussions. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygracedny.com for more information.